0: It is so easy to get caught up in the minutiae of our daily work as OTs, and sometimes it is incredibly helpful to zoom out and take a big picture look at the amazing changes we have seen in healthcare over the past decades. The journal article we are discussing today gives us a bird's eye view of the past, present, and future of managing rheumatic and musculoskeletal diseases. In this article, we'll see the same trends that we see in occupational therapy specific research. We'll see a focus on self management, patient reported outcome measures, and patient centeredness, and in how looking to the future technology is going to further enable all of these trends. After the article orients us to the advances in MSK care, we will be joined by Winnie Chu, OTL CHT MBA who works as a product manager on the frontiers of technology in this area, Winnie will help us understand the exciting technology that is ushering in the future of care and the role that OT has the potential to play in this exciting new reality. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles. Then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this article on trends in rheumatic and musculoskeletal OT, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. To gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. This is where you'll go to take a quiz after you're done listening, and if you pass, we'll generate a certificate for your time today. So bearing in mind that this time could count as a continuing education course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is you will be able to identify the general trends related to OT delivery for rheumatic and musculoskeletal disease. And our second is that you will be able to recognize how new technologies may help fill the current gaps in OT care. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then I will patch Winnie into this podcast. So our article today is called Managing Rheumatic and Musculoskeletal Diseases, past, present, and future. It comes to us from the journal Nature Reviews Rheumatology. It was published in 2017, and it is ranked 29th on our list of the 100 most influential OT journal articles. So the article begins with this introduction to rheumatic and musculoskeletal disease management. Now, rheumatology is just one of the most comprehensive and fascinating healthcare fields, But in my personal opinion, it is also one of the most misunderstood. So I wanted to give you just a little supplementary information because their intro into it is so brief. They assume that we know a lot of things about this particular field. And to me, it is confusing because there's different terminology that's used to describe this like umbrella of different diseases and disorders. But in this particular article, the authors talk about rheumatic and musculoskeletal diseases, or they call them RMDs. And in this, they are referring to painful conditions that can affect the joints, bones, cartilage, tendons, ligaments, and muscles. There are over 200 diseases that fall into this category I'm gonna give you a list of like 10 just to orient you. Some of these diseases include Bichette's disease, fibromyalgia, gout, lupus, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, tendonitis, and bursitis. So, while the term rheumatic and MSK diseases is probably the most accurate, these conditions are sometimes labeled just as rheumatic diseases or musculoskeletal diseases or arthritic conditions. And then to make things just extra confusing, many of these conditions are also autoimmune diseases, which often receive their own distinct classification. So that kind of gives us just that big picture orientation to the conditions that we're talking about. You'll hear when I talk with Winnie, I mostly just refer to these as MSK conditions. But looking again at the specific article, after their introduction, they head into why this specific article was written. And this article was written to reflect on the past, present, and future of rheumatology. Its publication coincided with the 70th anniversary of ULAR, the European Alliance of Associations for Rheumatology. If you are new to UR, they just seem to be this exemplary resource for producing practice guidelines. In the OT Potential Club, we did an overview of one of their guidelines on the management of early arthritis, and there's a lot of them for you to check out. But looking at this big picture history since ULAR has come to being, the authors note that the pharmacological therapeutics have transformed the outcomes for RMD patients, as have multidisciplinary non-pharmacological approaches such as surgery, PT, and OT. And they go on to summarize these advances as well as their implications for the future. And in doing that, they start with the timeline of pharmacological treatment. And just remarkable progress has been made in the pharmacological treatment of RMDs. Treating RMDs intensively and early has produced substantial gains, so much that drug-free remission is now becoming an attainable goal for people with RA. In the article, you'll see this handy timeline of all the different discoveries of medications. But for our purposes on the podcast, I just want you to know that there are three broad categories of these breakthroughs. The first is glucocorticoids like prednisone. The second is conventional synthetic DMARDs like methotrexate. And the third is biologic DMARDs. As far as advances in surgical treatment, the authors say that while the advances in pharmacology have decreased the need for surgery, especially in RA, surgical interventions are still a consideration for many RMD patients. And today, this process can be aided by 3D imaging and printing. Total joint replacement is one of the most common and cost-effective surgeries worldwide, and it continues to serve as a last resort option for RMD patients, especially those with osteoarthritis. But new developments are providing surgical options, especially for people in the earlier stages of OA. These include resurfacing operations, joint distraction surgery, and mesenchymal stem transplant. Next, we move on to the changes in clinical practice. This is a section that is really relevant to OT. They don't specifically call us out as healthcare providers in this section, but you'll hear how this is where we fall for sure. So they say that rheumatology has undergone several science-driven paradigm shifts, which include this changing in thinking in five main areas. The first is self-management programs. The idea of self-management has superseded the practice of just Plain old patient education. The second area is intensive exercise and in physical activity. This paradigm has replaced the practice of bed rest and assistive range of motion exercises, which were once a treatment for these patients. The third area is patient reported outcome measures. Practitioners are now being encouraged to administer these measures instead of relying exclusively on biomedical assessments. There's specifically a group, I think it's called OMERACT, which is dedicated to advancing outcome measures in rheumatology. I'll link to that in our show notes. Fourth is an increased understanding of psychological factors. There is now a focus on actively addressing patient depression, anxiety, coping skills, sense of control, and confidence. And lastly, is the implementation of specific rules for nurses and other health professionals. Like I said at the beginning, ULAR just does a great job of providing practice guidelines for treating these patients. After their section on changes in clinical practice, they have a section dedicated to the involvement of the patient and centering the patient within the treatment process. They say there is a growing awareness around shared decision-making as a catalyst for therapeutic gains. Improved dissemination of information and promotion of self-management to patients has produced important breakthroughs in improving outcomes. And finally, increased patient participation in research has contributed to more successful study designs as well as better outcome dissemination and implementation. From here, the authors talk about the advances in diagnostics and imaging, which I will refer you to the article for. And for our purposes, we're going to skip right ahead to what does the future hold in this practice area? The authors say that new insights into the cause and early detection of RMD indicate a future where we can more accurately classify and treat RMDs at the molecular level. This is huge considering that currently RMDs are often diagnosed and treated based on the patient's presentation of their symptoms. Another important growth area is understanding how environmental factors influence the development of RA. This is exemplified by the early research into RA and gut microbiota, which indicates that this may also be an important avenue for predicting and influencing clinical improvement. There's super interesting research on this, all linked to an article or two again in our show notes. And overall, they hope that defining these body level and environmental factors that influence RMDs will lead us into the precision medicine revolution, which the authors say is currently most advanced in cancer therapeutics. For clinicians, they also add that computational science will continue to influence our practice. The possibility of continuous electronic evaluation and processing of disease activity measures opens the door to semi-automated, real-time clinical decision-making. That sentence was just kind of a mouthful, and it's a lot to unpack, and thankfully that is why Winnie will be joining us in just a couple minutes to talk about what that can actually look like. But wrapping up this section, the authors say with these incredible advances, healthcare systems must evolve to ensure equitable access to therapeutics and other advances at a cost that is manageable for patients and payers alike. And then in their conclusion, they had just some really beautiful words for us to consider. I usually don't quote the articles directly, but I'm going to read to you how they ended this summary. The authors say, "...the possibilities for remarkable progress also carry the risk of misdirection and political minimization of the true effects of RMDs on the lives of patients." An algorithmic approach to treatment should not be allowed to replace the fundamental depth of care that is implicit in the relationship between the health professional and people with RMDs. Such a caring art of rheumatology should remain our legacy to future generations. So as I hope you can tell from this article, we have just made remarkable progress in MSK care, and there are a lot of exciting possibilities on the horizon, especially when we think about technology's role here. But there's also potential pitfalls, and we need really great leaders to guide this future where rehab and technology merge even more closely. And it is just my honor today to welcome to the podcast Winnie Chu. Winnie trained in OT at the University of Alberta. She then moved to New York City where she acquired her certified hand therapy certification and MBA at New York University. Winnie worked as a clinical specialist of hand therapy at NYU Rusk Institute for Rehabilitation for 10 years. She then shifted to developing technology for healthcare, collaborating with clinicians and tech developers in Silicon Valley, John Hopkins University, NYU, Columbia, and Washington University. She now works as a senior product manager at Kaya Health. Kaya offers digital programs to help people with chronic musculoskeletal pain, including back, hip, and knee pain, and COPD. The company's mission is to make affordable and effective therapy accessible to millions of patients around the world. So without further ado, I will patch Winnie into our podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Winnie. It's great to have you. Thanks. Good to be here. I'm so thankful that you are here to talk about this journal article today and kind of to catch us up on where the future of managing musculoskeletal disorders is headed. I felt like the journal article really covered the past and present really well. But I got to the end and was definitely like, what's the future look like? There's been so much remarkable progress. And what's the future remarkable progress going to look like? But before we get to that, I really wanted to get to know you better and start just with your origin story of how you found OT. Yeah, I um,
1: was a student doing my bachelor's and just not quite clear what I was going to do with my life, just general studies, bouncing around, changing my career goals every month or so, and happened to go with my aunt to the pediatric children's hospital because my nephew, or my cousin, sorry was born with a hand deformity and she needed a translator. So I went with her to the Peds hospital and there were these people called occupational therapists and they were wearing sweats and lying on the floor on the mat (laughs) and playing with children all day long. And I thought, this sounds great. I could just roll out of bed and do this and play with children all day and found out more about it, volunteered at the hospital and then became an occupational therapist but never quite worked in the hospital ped setting <laughs> but during my last year as an OT for my senior field work i got an opportunity to shadow and work with a hand therapist and immediately fell in love with hand therapy and became a certified hand therapist as soon as i could <laughs>
0: Yeah. I want to make lots of jokes about how you were drawn because of the sweatpants, but what, what I really want to hone in on is I've never thought about the common trend in the stories that OTs tend to have lots of different interests, especially when they're like headed into college. And I feel like it's a common story that they're looking all around because we tend to have a lot of different interests and then they find OT and that kind of sinks lots of those interests, including for you, the sweatpants component. So.
1: I, I agree. <laughs> I find OT is a dynamic group in general. So having lots of interests, a lot of skills and aptitude doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. So you found
0: hand therapy. And then I'm so curious how you got drawn into the rehab technology side of things. It's so fun to read your bio and see the different areas that you worked in. What drew you to that?
1: Yeah. The first... Thing I could say about uh, technology is, I was working in a major rehab hospital in New York, and with that comes a lot of people who are interested in doing research affiliated with a major hospital. And so the technology companies came in, and was right in front of me as a hand therapist and as a supervisor of the hand therapy department, and I got a chance to play with a lot of the tech as they were being developed. And they wanted our feedback as clinicians and they wanted to gather a summary of feedback of the patients if they were not allowed to be patient facing yet. And so I got a chance to give them really like detailed feedback. And at the time I was doing my MBA, so I wasn't just giving them feedback as a potential end user, but I was also giving them market analysis, growth strategy, Mm -hmm. commercialization, (laughs) financial (laughs) investment strategies. And they're like, this is the best (laughs) person to come to. And, And more and more technology companies were coming to me and they actually suggested that I should do this as a side hustle because I was giving them such great feedback and have more people have access to me. So that's Mm -hmm. how I ended up doing more technology consultation alongside with my OT career. And as a senior student doing my MBA, we're often encouraged to do a business plan competition. Mm. And during that business plan competition, Way back when, I wanted to develop a website that does price comparison for off-the-shelf medical products, medical equipment. Hmm. Because at the time, when you wanted to buy, let's say, a shower chair for a family member, you could go to 10 different sites and it would have 10 very different prices. Mm -hmm. And I love... One of my favorite websites at the time was Kayak. And if Kayak can do a consolidated price comparison for a flight that you want to take, then why not a website to do price comparison for things that are on the market that you can buy without a prescription for medical products? And I came in second place. First place was Foursquare, whatever. Oh, (laughs) But second place is not bad after Foursquare. Um, yes. so I got a chance to develop my own website, talked with the designers and engineers, and build a website from scratch because of that business plan and I was hooked i mm. I love technology from that point on instead of just advising other people, I thought maybe I could build more and more of my own tech. But that company for price comparison pretty much died a quick death when Amazon and uh, Google (laughs) decided to do the same thing. They must have seen my idea. Yeah. Oh,
0: wow. That's so... I have two questions. How did you first start getting paid as a consultant? And then how did you fully leave... Hand therapy to focus on tech. What were those two parts of your journey?
1: Yeah, paid is an interesting question. As OTs, I find that it's hard for us to talk about money, mm-hmm. asking for pay, figuring out what our value is and being able to communicate that and negotiate for ourselves. When we negotiate for our patients, we're really good at that. But mm-hmm. when we're negotiating for ourselves, it's a, it's definitely a, a skill. But I was doing my MBA, so I just had to pull up my big boy pants, I guess, and start negotiating on my own behalf. Mm. It fluctuated in terms of payment because it depended on how interested I was in the project itself. If I thought the project had a lot of legs and a lot of potential and the team was exciting to work with, but they were more early in their developmental stage and didn't have a lot of money, I would take equity. Knowing that It probably won't pan out, but at least something was on paper that I would have a percentage of the company if it did. And if it was further along and that they had more funding, then I would start negotiating at a rate that was on par with what other product managers or clinical advisors or domain experts would charge. And luckily in New York and on the West Coast, I had a lot of friends who are doing this already. So I generally had an idea of what the market rate was, and I would start negotiating at that price point. Hmm. And then how did you go from doing that as a side hustle to full-time into tech? What did that look like? It just it became financially possible for me to leave clinic. Mm-hmm. And I had already been a hand therapist for about 15 years, 10 years as a senior hand therapist at a major hospital. It Sometimes you get burnt out. It was just time. And so it took me about five years, maybe even 10 years to migrate fully into technology. Hmm.
0: That's a time window I always tell people to think in is to... Think in the five to 10 year time window. I think we so often tend to think in like the one to two year time window, but so many possibilities open up when you think in that five to 10 year time window.
1: It wasn't planned for sure. But also, as an occupational therapist, our on ramp and off ramp, as they say in the financial industries, is great. We could, you know, step away and take Mm -hmm. a break from clinical work, and then come back pretty easily. There's always contract work to be done, per diem work. We could pretty much pick up a job at any time. So I found the risk of stepping away from clinical work was significantly lower than if I was in another industry.
0: Mm -hmm. So
1: given that risk level, which is quite low, I was able to step back and forth in and out of clinic work until I had enough work as a consultant or a Mm -hmm. technologist to step away fully. Yeah. I've never thought about that explicitly,
0: but that resonates with my own story too, where I always have in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, I can always go get a job as an OT or pick up hours. And we are very lucky in that way that we have that flexibility that we don't, it's not career ending to step away for a little bit and try something new. So that's So exciting to hear that trajectory. We could talk about that all day, but I want to get to your current job and how you got there. I saw you pop up on LinkedIn when I first saw I was covering this article and I was like, oh, this is the person I want to talk to. So
1: tell us a little bit about where you're at today. Well, how did I find this current job? I think I would always say it's preparation meets opportunity. I had been, like I said, a consultant in technology for many years. And sometimes I was a consultant, sometimes I was brought in as an actual team member, an early team member of various startups. And all the startups that I was participating in are technology that I thought were interesting, that I thought I had a specific skill set as a clinician or as a person who's developed products in the past, had some uh, specific value to bring to the table? And then vice versa, did the product interest me? And did I think that this product had commercialization opportunities, or would it really make a really big impact on patients? And based on that is how I decide which projects to work on. And with each project, I learned more and more and more to the point where it shows in my LinkedIn profile. Everything that I do, every project Mm -hmm. that I worked on, I made sure that I communicated this into the world, what I was working on, and so people could look at my profile and find me. And that's exactly how I found newer and bigger and more and more projects because people were finding me on LinkedIn. And a recruiter found me from the company that I'm at right now, reached out and said, would you be interested? And it was one of the companies that I had on a separate list, dream companies to work with eventually. Wow. And I was just like, I couldn't type fast enough. Yes. (laughs) Call me. (laughs) (laughs) And it went incredibly smoothly, the interviewing process. It was nine interviews
0: wow. with various
1: people, rounds and rounds and rounds of interviews. And I think I was a good fit because it went so smoothly.
0: Hmm. I hope OTs are just like taking notes as they're hearing you talk. I even like your online presence. I Google OTs all the time and showcasing our work is not one of our strengths. Like I know the OTs and I know the amazing things that they're doing, but you would never know that when you look at their online presence and how many missed opportunities have we had because we didn't showcase our work in the way that you did. Yeah. And it's exciting to see work like yours and see their trajectory of, I'm sure it felt kind of random at the time, but I definitely see that, like you said, preparation meets opportunity. I see the how all of that prepared you for this job. So,
1: Yeah. The other thing that I hold on to when looking for a new job is what I call stepping stones. It may not be an original, but an intuitive thought to hire an occupational therapist in a technology company. So I did the stepping stones. I took on jobs that was an easy sell as an occupational therapist. The first job was like a domain expert, a healthcare expert as an advisor to technology. And then as I gained more experience, I was able to step onto the next stone and gain more experience. So that when a recruiter looks at your LinkedIn profile or your resume, it's that Aha moment that you're, you're trying to fill for them. So they don't have to fill in the gaps in terms of your experience level and your trajectory. You've mapped it out for them. These are the steps that I've taken and here's where I'm at, which is the perfect fit for the job that you're looking for (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) to fill. Yeah. Yeah. So if they only have just a few seconds to look at every resume and every LinkedIn profile. If they have to do any thinking or processing, they might just move on to the next candidate. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, we have to be good storytellers of our own stories. And I think we're good storytellers of other people's stories as OTs, but that's definitely an area I can see us needing to grow in. So tell us about Kaya Health and just a big picture overview of what it is in your role there.
1: Sure. Kaya Health is a company that is a digital solution, a digital therapy solution that addresses chronic conditions. The two chronic conditions that we're focused on right now are MSK and COPD. And it is a digital first solution because it is an app that you could pull out to do exercises, to do relaxation exercises, and to learn a little bit more about your condition. And you could do it anywhere, anytime. Currently, it's not available on the app store to buy. It is usually through your employer. So if your employer buys it as a package, it's offered to you as a benefit as an employee that you can download and use it as you wish. And the other payer for Kaya Health are insurance companies. So instead of going to various therapies and, and doctors and other providers, you could, as an option, download this app through your insurance or through your company and start doing some therapy on your own for various chronic conditions. And Kaya Health has two fronts. It's based in Germany. First, it's a German company and there is the U.S. based company. So in Germany, it's a different uh, model. It, we are working with the German government to make it an app that's available to every German because they have a universal healthcare system. So a doctor or a therapist could prescribe it on a prescription. The German user could download it and it would be paid for by the German government. In the U.S., it is more paid for by your employer, as I mentioned before, or by your insurance company.
0: Hmm. It's almost like you guys read this journal article and built Kaya Health based on (laughs) what they projected where I see the self-management parts of it. I see the digital monitoring that can happen, all like they talked about in the future trends. So I guess turning to the article, what were your initial impressions of it from your standpoint of kind
1: of being on this frontier of MSK care? Yeah, my first impression is like, this is exactly like you said the article is talking about my app. Where, yeah. where <laughs> is it in there in the article yeah, <laughs> as a reference? Yeah. Um, it, it's also when it says a communication technology. There are various communication technologies out there, and I think of it on a spectrum. When COVID hit, a lot of people moved on to telehealth, That is a communication technology. You're communicating with your therapist through a digital platform as opposed to in the clinic. And there are other platforms like a care management platform that a lot of orthopedic surgeons are using right now where they send you a text to remind you, you know, a few days before your surgery Mm -hmm. that you need to do this, this and that. A day before the surgery, you're supposed to be, you know, NPO. And then a few days after, to remind you to keep your legs up, to use ice, whatnot—just, just the care management. And appointment scheduling type of communication. But I think Kaya takes it to the next level because we are one of the first platforms out there that offers a 3D computer vision, a body analysis system. So using only your phone or your tablet and the camera that's on your, on your device, it could watch you do your exercises, the ones that we prescribe to you and give you feedback are you doing it correctly? How many reps you're doing it? As if there is a therapist standing right beside you, giving you that kind of feedback when you're doing exercises, which is a whole nother level compared to people on like say YouTube or TikTok, just following along doing exercises. This is actual dynamic real-time feedback using the camera on your phone. So in terms of a spectrum, I think Kaya is very leading in this technology and in and, and the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. I think
0: some therapists may hear what you're describing and feel like a little sense of threat to be like, oh, that's kind of what I do as a therapist. So I was wondering if you could speak to just the current gaps we have in MSK care. We've touched on this in the podcast before, but there's so many patients who do not get therapy. How do you see this filling that role and how does it relate to in-person therapy?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think in terms of gaps, there was a study that I saw that I thought was really interesting. And I'd like to use that study to highlight the point that I'm going to be making. It's about access, access to care and, and what that cost of access to care is there's a cost of time you know it takes a lot of time out of your day to go see your therapist and come back and often you have to see your therapist two to three times a week so that's there's access there's cost and there's also cost of course like monetary costs how much it costs for copay and those insurance you know Bills that are not bills and do I pay for this? Do I not? And the amount it could be difficult to, to afford and to understand. But the article specifically said, let's use some big numbers for easy math. Let's say a hundred people with back pain, right? And 50 of those people actually go see a doctor about this back pain. And then 30 of these people get a prescription. And according to the study, only 10 of these people actually end up being in front of a therapist, physical or occupational therapist. So out of the 100, only 10% made it in to see an actual therapist. And of that 10%, only about 30% complete their course of therapy. So what we're trying to do at Kaya Health is to reach that 90% of the people who are not in front of a therapist for various reasons. And if we can reach those people and provide some care, not that nearly the quality of care that they would get in front of a therapist. I could speak that with confidence as a fellow therapist. But some care that could be early stage back pain, preventative care back pain, ergonomics, related to back pain, maybe it could help that patient manage the pain that they have and keep it at bay before it gets worse until they can actually go to the doctor, until they can actually be in front of their therapist so they could get that higher level of care.
0: Mm -hmm. Those numbers are so staggering, the number of people that just are not getting care right now And I can see that in my own personal life where I'm like, I only go to the doctor if I absolutely need to. And there's so much prevention that gets missed in that. And I just see that huge need for the service like yours. And hopefully I can imagine there's a percentage of people who maybe use the service and are like, oh, this is prompting me to realize I need more care. Or if you've done this route and then you get to a therapist, you're like more prepared for actual in-person therapy. So... I think in an optimistic spin, it could be like, we could think of it as an opportunity for in-person therapy too.
1: I think it's a, it's a gateway. It's a precursor. Mm-hmm. It facilitates this. And Kaya is also moving forward in developing a hybrid system. There are physical therapists and exercise physiologists and personal trainers that are staffed at Kaya. So if the pain level or the assessment that we do when people onboard Takaya flags them as someone that needs to speak to someone before they start the digital therapies, then they are routed to our care team to have that one-on-one conversation so that we are providing the right level of support to the users if, and it's happened in many cases, there is something more urgent and something that the patient or the user that comes to our app requires a higher level of care. Because the app is all over the US, I've heard from physical therapists that they go online and they look for physical therapists that are near that patient and help them find a therapist that they can go to. And they talk them through to help them so that they can find care faster and appropriate care. So I think it's a great system to have that collaboration.
0: Yep. Yeah, and I can see the need for OTs to be aware of platforms like this and for certain of us as OTs to be like, oh, I should be working for that platform. Like I need to be the OT who's working on there and connecting with fellow OTs because we understand the many dimensions of care that we can bring. I'm also thinking about how... This app is so in this realm of self-management, which we talk about all the time on the podcast, but lots of times it's a little like, what does self-management look like? That's, for me, it's a paradigm shift from what I learned in OT school to be really setting the patient up for self-management. How do you feel technology like at Kaya is really driving us forward into this self-management paradigm?
1: Yeah, (laughs) self-management. always brings to mind doctor google yeah, you know yeah. like <laughs> yes yeah h- how can we do better than doctor google how yeah. can we do better than tiktok <gasps> or youtube yep to have a reliable source of content is important so that the patients when they're doing self management are finding information from a good source Right. I know Mayo Clinic has a great website. I know WebMD is a good source. So when, when patients come in, they're like, Oh, I found something online. I'm like, can you tell me where you found it? Before they even tell me what they found, you know, where, where did you find this information? But I think with technology, we can do better with self-management. It could be more structured. It could be better content. When I say better content, I mean more personalized content to what you need. Even as therapists, if we were to find a YouTube video, sometimes they are the best source to highlight an exercise or explain a diagnosis. We may have to filter through 10 videos before we find one that we find reflects what we want to share with the patient right? So with Kaya Health, I believe, and other platforms similar to Kaya Health, it allows a more personalized content delivery, as in we actually do an assessment, we ask questions, we try to find out a little bit more about your condition, and then we deliver information that is relevant to you that is more personalized. And another aspect of self-management, as I was talking about, Kaya has a biometric assessment with 3D motion analysis. So not every exercise is appropriate for everybody. What the gap is with telehealth is that we can't actually really measure what you can and cannot do. We're only seeing what we see on the screen. So with the 3D motion analysis, the computer vision, we can actually measure your progress and your baseline and then recommend Mm. exercises for you.
0: Mm. That trajectory that I think we all need to go on from, I think... Sometimes our initial reaction to self-management is that like cringe, like, oh no, what's happening? (laughs) To seeing the possibilities and being really excited for our patients. And I mean, that's our goal for our patients to really take that ownership of their care. And there's already so many exciting things that are out there for them. And
1: that is only going to grow. Also, there are a lot of technologies that are out there for different applications aside from healthcare. One of the technology that we like to follow is Duolingo to learn a new language. We kind of look at it as a parallel to what we're doing. Duolingo, Noom, Headspace, those are all technology that are self-management for different types of applications Mm and different industries. So, In Duolingo, mastering a new language is like a therapy plan. And every day you log in and you do an exercise or a lesson. And over time, you become more and more proficient. Healthcare could emulate that kind of self-management technique or self-learning technique to get to a certain level of care management or pain management. It may never be fully, fully you're fully healed, all the pain is gone. We understand the limitations of our own app, but at least it gives you something tangible to work on every day and learn more about the condition that you are experiencing.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting you said that because when I first saw your app, it actually reminded me of a sports app where they can like track players on the field and they're like calculating stuff. And as an OT, you're like, if we can do that for sports teams, surely we can do that for the human body and for our therapy. And that's so interesting to see that happening. And to the point earlier in our conversation, like, oh, I think this is why OTs can be really good in this because our interests are so broad and there's a huge benefit in seeing things from all different areas and thinking, oh, what does that mean for me? And my what possibilities does this technology open up for me? You mentioned the tracking part. And in the article, they talked specifically about patient-reported outcome measures and how important it is to gauge how the patient feels that they're doing. And I wanted to ask a little bit more just about the whole assessment process in Kaya and how does biometric tracking fit into that bigger assessment picture?
1: I think one of the reasons why... I was hired is because I am also an occupational therapy professor. I've been an adjunct professor for over 10 years, teaching occupational therapists how to do soap notes. And what does a soap, Hmm. what does the words S-O-A-P mean? And it is a very unique and privileged position to be teaching a computer software what soap means. So we start with S, subjective, right? So as a user on boards in the app, we're asking them questions that we would ask in a subjective part of our assessment. Where is their pain? What is their level of their pain? What are some of the functional difficulties they have? Like when I was a hand therapist, we would have the quick dash or the COPM and we collect that information as part of the S. And then we move on to the O, the objective measurements. And that is where the 3D motion analysis comes in. We are measuring range of motion. We're measuring flexibility. We're using the technology to simulate what we would do in a clinical setting to run through those clinical tests and the assessments that we do at kaya are standardized tests clinically standardized tests with clinical norms and proof that these tests have good interrater reliability between clinicians and one day we will be doing these clinical trial studies where we could see how our technology compares with clinicians. We have some randomized controlled trial studies already at KIA for various things, but we have yet to do the study for assessments, the full battery of assessments, and I'm excited to do some of that research in the future. So that's S and O. And then for A, for assessments, we have our own proprietary algorithm to figure out what the priorities are that the user needs to address. Clinically, we could do that. Digitally, we can do that as well. And then for the P, again, our algorithm will come up with some exercises for the user, but not just exercises, actually. Our algorithm can come up with a multimodal therapy for the user. Multimodal therapy, what I mean by that is exercise, education, and relaxation. So based on the S and the O and the A we will derive a P and it's exciting to teach a software how to do the soap note. Yeah. Oh that's amazing cuz you're talking about something so
0: technical but I felt this like big stir of emotion when you started talking to be like wow that soap note framework is so powerful and I think it's something that we take for granted and I'm so happy that you're in the position you are to be leveraging that for patients. I think it's so, yeah, so powerful to see it used in that way. You mentioned the multimodal nature of the treatment plan, which was another thing that I wanted to be sure to ask about because I think the possibilities of this holistic treatment through an app like yours are so interesting and exciting. And yeah, I just wanted to ask, how do you see technology like yours enabling this really holistic approach to care?
1: I think it's a good time to go back to Kaya Health and their founder's story the founders of Kaya are engineers, but they themselves were suffering from some chronic pain and they were searching around for the best types of therapies. And for them, they found that it wasn't just one thing that was helping them, but it was a combination of treatment from different providers. And that's why they wanted to develop an app that really stress from day one, that it's not just about exercises, that the best care comes from a more holistic, multidisciplinary approach. And that's why they came up with a multimodal therapy. To your question specifically, it's like, how do we become holistic? How does a user learn more about different approaches? And back to Dr. Google, people can go down random rabbit holes, of various experts that could teach them a lot of different things. And as you know, people will end up veering towards the path of least resistance or down the path of things that they were already interested in and really were not just interested in, but things that they had some kind of inkling that this might be a good thing for them, whether it's true or not. But then there might be a whole spectrum of other approaches that they may miss if they go down a particular rabbit hole. And so I think a platform that is designed to provide multimodal therapy is a better way of delivering content that's personalized and customized to the user, because we would offer different therapies to them and they could choose that every day which therapy they would like to do. If today I'm feeling kind of tired, don't really want to move, right? I could just choose education or I could choose relaxation. And I believe that would be a more curated content delivery system. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love the idea of giving people those
0: nudges. I know for myself that even I have the tendency to be like, can I just take a vitamin to solve this? Like, so what's the easiest thing I can possibly do? And we definitely need those nudges and yeah, that exposure to the different options that are out there. I'm just hearing all of this, Winnie, and I'm being like, in OT, I think we need people doing what you're doing in this like high level product management role. We need therapists who are working on, for the platforms like yours. And then we need therapists on the ground that are like in close connection to be that referral point for when more therapy is needed. How do we need to change as a profession to prepare for this future? That's a big question.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But it's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, And and you got to start somewhere, right? I can only speak about Kaya. At Kaya, I'm the only OT. There are about five or six physical therapists. There's even a speech therapist, but that speech therapist has also transitioned. She is head of operations and she helps manage the, the physical therapist and the entire care team in terms of their delivery of service. So I would love to see more occupational therapists in my role. And that is one of the reasons why I posted my stepping stones and every new job and every new project on LinkedIn so that other occupational therapists can find me and reach out. And if anybody wants to reach out, find me <laughs> on LinkedIn. I'm happy to have a conversation to talk about, you know, what your interests are. And if, if product management may not be one of the ways that you would like to transfer and grow as a clinician, it could be in sales. It could be in customer service. We are OTs amazing at task analysis. So we could be user researchers. We could be designers of new apps. I think there's infinite possibilities for occupational therapies to grow and make impact in technology development. And every technology startup, some clinicians have said that if there is not a healthcare team member in key roles in this technology company, then it's just a technology company that happens to be doing something in healthcare. But if they have a clinician at the table so to speak, then we will call this a healthcare tech. So there are many technology companies that needs a healthcare person at the table. So get involved. One of the ways that I got involved early on was be part of the university's maker-thons. As OTs, as a hand therapist, I'm a maker. I make things all day long. So get involved. We have tons of ideas. I don't know how many times I've been in in a clinic where a a clinician is picking up some gadget that they just hacked together with some splinting material. And they said, this is going to be the one. This is going to be the ticket. I'm going to sell a million of these on Amazon. Go do it. Yeah. It'll be fun. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's almost like the opportunities are there and we just need the courage and self-advocacy to step into them and I think that's part of why I've been so inspired by your story is I think you were really astute at doing that early on and represent some of the best of us who saw what you could bring to the table and acted on that. This has felt really like big picture. I almost want to say like science fiction-y to me to be like thinking about this future, thinking about students and OTs in traditional practices, what do you think is one thing they could do differently today after hearing this conversation?
1: Often after I, you know, posted my various jobs on LinkedIn, I get texts and LinkedIn direct messages to me, like, how did you do it? How do I get involved? And then I often check their profile and I say, I don't see any steps, like to those stepping stone idea. Or preparation meets opportunity. I don't see in your LinkedIn profile what you are currently working on to make that change or to expand your experience into technology. Maybe it's not in there. Maybe you can share some of these ideas with me that isn't documented yet. And often I hear, oh, I just, I'm just thinking about it, but I haven't made those steps. And in this podcast, and with you, you started a podcast, you expanded your role as an OT, right? To encourage everybody to take those little baby steps. And it may be different for everybody because your interests are different, your skill set is different to take those stepping stones and try to take advantage of all those hungry people that are looking for domain experts, that are looking for a clinician to sit at their table. They're more than happy to have a chat with you. So reach out through LinkedIn or their own website of a technology company that you found interesting. Just email them and say, hey, I'm a clinician. Here are the things that I think I could help you with. Can we have a chat? And you'd be surprised how many people will respond to you and say, yes, we're interested. The other thing that I wanted to mention is that it took me a long time to find this role because even as a product manager, that role is relatively new, maybe in the last five to 10 years. So when I was looking for this role, it's not surprising that I didn't find it earlier, but- what I see in some of the OTs that are transitioning now, their transition time is significantly shorter. I would say within one to two years, they're already making that transition as an OT to a UX researcher or a UX designer through, there's a lot of boot camps out there for designers or coding or product development, that might be an avenue that you would take. It's not a necessary thing to have, to have that certification, but it does open doors for you because then people will take you a little bit more seriously as someone that is willing to invest your time and your money to learn a new skill and not just look at you as just simply a domain expert or a clinician, but a clinician and... Something else. So again, certification is not mandatory, but it's a really nice to have. Mm-hmm. I wasn't
0: expecting from this conversation to, I feel like we talked about the frontiers of MSK care, but also just to think about the frontiers of what does it look like to be an OT and to keep expanding that skill set of ours and to marry it with this future of technology. I think your story is such a great example of that. And you're right, we need the nudge to step into that. And it helps us tremendously to hear stories like yours and to see people doing it and see the fulfillment that comes from that and the exciting nature of it. I'm so thankful for this conversation today. We're already at our rapid fire time. If you're up for a couple last quick questions. Absolutely. Fire away. How do you usually describe occupational therapy to people? Ooh, that's a good one. Um,
1: after 25 years and as an occupational therapist, I still haven't quite figured it out yet. <laughs> um, certified hand therapist is easier to talk about. Uh, yeah. And even that, I have to have lots of disclaimers. I do therapy for the upper extremity and it's not just hand therapy. It's here from the tip of my fingers all the way up to my oh, shoulder, yeah. right? So that was easier. Um, yes. as an occupational therapist, I break it down. I'm, I'm like it, we often look at functional tasks. So if you've had a stroke or a spinal cord injury or if a fracture, how does that impact your function every day? And as occupational therapists, we look at that function and then we step back or we drill down into that. So when we drill down, it's like, let's break it up. What are the things that you're struggling with in order to take a shower by yourself or cook a meal? And we would have to work collaboratively with other professionals, a PT, speech therapist, to see if we could help that person take a bath. And then we step back And we look at a person through various developmental stages. An OT can work in pediatrics all the way up to the senior population because there's different functions at different stages in our lives. Mm -hmm. So we can work in multiple settings and in multiple environments, even in technology.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I love that visual of like stepping back versus drilling. in. that's totally what we do. And I've never thought about that movement in that way. What's one moment that you've had as an OT, either in a clinical or non-clinical role, that you'll never forget?
1: When I got a call from my supervisor at NYU, where I was a clinical hand specialist, and then later on working as a per diem because I just love the people that I work with and I love the facility. I just couldn't quit. I was per diem 10 years after I left full time. (laughs) That's how much I love working with the team (sighs) and the people there. But I got a call months in advance in the middle of COVID to tell me to come back to New York to work on a patient And I was like, how do you know someone's about to have a stroke months in advance? Like, I know I was working in hand therapy and I was working in the complex medical unit for inpatient rehab, but it was when she had to like swear me to secrecy and told me that I was one of the four therapists that were pulled in to work on the first hand and face transplant patient. Wow. And I was like, yes, I will do that. (laughs) I will be happy to be part of that team. And it was the most, it was an incredible experience to be working with everybody that was the team that surrounded this patient.
0: Wow. Yeah, the rest of us were just like reading about that story and stories like it online and how incredible to be there. What's something that you've read recently that's inspired you as an OT? You
1: know, I don't have a whole lot of time to read. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I listen to podcasts a lot. <laughs> Me too. For example, this podcast. But one of my favorite podcasts is How I Built This. Mm-hmm. You know, different people building different technologies in different industries and different applications. And another great podcast that I like is Pivot. It's a cutting edge technology podcast twice a week. I love listening to them, their personalities. The two hosts are fantastic. And the recent one that I've been listening over and over again is about Snapchat, the founder, Evan Spiegel, and talking about what's going on at Snapchat and how are they building that one out. Yeah. Hmm. I
0: also listened to those episodes on Pivot and yeah, that the technology that's out there and I agree that's like a place that's fun for me to think about, what are the therapy implications of this? Winnie, we've talked about so much today. We're at the end. What's a final thought or takeaway that you want to close this on?
1: I guess I'm just going to repeat some of the things that I said, Mm -hmm. which is I think as OTs, we have a great plan B in our career to allow us to take more risks and have that opportunity to expand our role as an OT. And I would say, go out and try to see what you can do. I know a lot of OTs and PTs who've become engineers, who've become designers, product managers. Maybe there's a role out there that I don't even know about that you can find for yourself and carve a path for yourself. And I'd love the chance to hear your story someday on a podcast. Well, Winnie,
0: this has been so inspirational. Thank you so much for your time today and just for this glimpse into the future. It's definitely an exciting one. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Wow, you all, before this conversation, I definitely already believe that the future of rehab is going to be merged even more closely with the future of health technologies. But this conversation with Winnie really solidified that for me and really, in my mind, accelerated the pace at which that might be happening for us. Winnie and I didn't really get a chance to touch on this, but we talked about it afterwards. The implications of health technologies like this, of course, are really profound for MSK patients. But no matter what setting you work in, I hope you can start imagining how monitoring technologies like we talked about could be helpful to your patients. I'm thinking of areas like maternal health or burn therapy or vision therapy. Just the tracking capabilities that we're going to have digitally within our generation are so exciting for our patients and I think should be really exciting for us. There's a lot to think about and unpack from this episode. And definitely the primary place that we do that is within the OT Potential Club. We have a forum both connected to this research article that we talked about and specifically for the podcast with Winnie today. So I hope you hop in there with thoughts and questions. I think the level of change that we're talking about today is definitely something that we need to be processing as a group and with each other. As you can tell, the era of silos is over and we really need to be connecting with each other about these exciting possibilities. The club is also where you will head to earn a certificate for your time today. Like I said at the beginning, we have a quiz you can take if you are interested in earning CEU credit for this time. And as always, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time.